And if you want to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy, this is our final passage in this amazing book, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm sure you've heard the statement, don't let your emotions get the best of you, right? And in fact, what happens is when our emotions get the best of us, it seems to bring out the worst in us, right? Isn't that what happens? And if you're not careful, uh, you may end up looking like this, right? Okay. And uh, this is going to be a beautiful Christmas card picture for someone right there. And that's what happens when we're just like out of control emotionally. And if we don't know how to answer this question, how do the emotionally overwhelmed become overcomers in Christ? Friends, what happens is we on a regular basis are unraveled. We don't know how to triumph in our trials. We oftentimes are, face our disappointments and our dangers and our discouragements and and, and they overwhelm us, and they derail us. I will tell you, there are two factors that are going to most influence your faith in Christ, and they are what is highlighted in the Apostle Paul's final letter, written shortly before he was executed for his faith in Christ. He wrote this amazing letter to Timothy. And in this final passage, we see the two factors that are going to most influence our faith in Christ. And the first is, it's the people in your life. You and I are designed for relationships. Did you know that? And that is because God is triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, absolutely personable. And the joy and the love that is celebrated among the, the Trinity is now extended to all of us who have been made in God's image, every person. You need to know that by divine design, you were created for relationship. And it is our relationships, the the people in our life, they're going to make a significant influence in your walk with God. And that is why Paul writes, beginning in verse 9, as he starts recounting people, he says, verse 9, to Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. You see, the encourager needed encouragement. And that is why he's telling Timothy, his beloved son. It's interesting how Timothy, he's the only guy in the entire Bible that receives two books personally, written by the Apostle Paul. In chapter 1, verse uh, two, verse 2 in this book, he's referred to as my beloved son. In the beginning of 1 Timothy, He's referred to as my true child in the faith. Timothy, this man who had spent about 10 years traveling with the Apostle Paul, now he is stationed as a pastor in Ephesus, a really tough city facing all sorts of difficulties, and he himself is going through discouragement. Paul writes this, make every effort to come to me soon. And that is because it is in relationship. We experience depth. It's in sharing in those meaningful conversations, doing life together, experiencing ministry, doing important things together, making memories. That's why we experience so much richness. And God uses these relationships to just like infuse us with greater faith in Christ. And you're going to need it because sometimes life is going to have some huge disappointments. Like verse 10, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Maybe this is why there was such an urgency to come, because Demas, I'll tell you, Demas is such an interesting guy. He appears three different times in the New Testament. 
In the book of Philemon, he is listed as a fellow laborer, a co-worker, and he's listed with some really key guys. He's referenced again in Colossians chapter 4, but here we have in 2 Timothy at the very end, we have that he has deserted me. It has the idea to utterly abandon someone, and he actually lists the reason why. Because Demas has loved this present world, the cosmos, the world, its, its system, its ideals. It, it has a way of just owning us. In fact, we were owned by the world prior to knowing Jesus. All we could do is try to find our satisfaction and sense of identity and peace and hope. Our priorities were all oriented around the world. I need this position, this money. I got to have this kind of influence. And we were dominated by the world's thinking. But God rescued us. He not only revealed the wonders of Jesus, he showed us the depravity of our sin and he gave us redemption in Christ and we've been rescued from the world. But I want you to know that even as a Christian, this world can have a significant pull on your life, dominate your thinking, own you, make you compelled to want to go back into its ways. You lose perspective of the vertical. just gets you focused on the horizontal, the here and now. The eternal seems almost absent. And for Demas, he loved this present world. We don't know if uh, Demas was just a a false believer, kind of going with the flow, and it's like, wow, this is pretty amazing what God is doing through his gospel. Or whether it was just Demas, just like, you know, this is getting a little rough around here following Jesus in the Roman Empire. You know, it's my time, and I think I'll have things my way. There's some things that I want to experience in my life, and we don't know what it is, but we do know this, that Demas, having loved this present world, had deserted him. You know, this is really a stark warning for all of us. You know, this could happen to you or me, to have loved this present world. I'll tell you, it's going to come down to this. You were either going to love this present world or you were going to do like we saw last week, love the appearing of Christ. But it's going to end up one or the other. And Paul, you got to see just the pain of having to write this. Demas having loved this present world, he's deserted me. By the way, if don't be surprised if uh, some folks maybe that you've made key investments in or you really love and it's, it seems like we've been walking with Jesus for some time and and they abandon you. If Jesus can have a Judas, you likely are going to have a few experiences of some folks that are just going to leave you high and dry. And that's what Paul is writing about here. Maybe that's why Paul is pleading with Timothy, come, make every effort. And that is because, like it says in Proverbs 17, 17, says this, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Or like Proverbs 27, 17, where it says this, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And here the apostle Paul is saying, come, Timothy, make every effort. You see the importance of relationship? It just diffuses and helps us in our faith in Christ. Paul goes on in verse 10, he says, Crescens has gone to Galatia, an area that that, um, Paul had actually visited on numerous occasions three different missionary journeys, Titus till Dalmatia. This is modern-day Serbia, used to be called Yugoslavia. Titus is such a key guy. When 
there was a difficult assignment. Do you know who Paul would send? He would send Titus. In fact, like perhaps one of the most difficult assignments on the island of Crete, where everybody was evil beasts, lazy gluttons, liars. Remember, even their own poet wrote that about them. Paul just quoted them. You know, when they were establishing the churches and appointing elders, do you know who the apostle Paul sent? Titus, a guy who was unafraid. He wasn't into it for the accolades, in it for his own comfort. He's walking with Jesus. He's a kingdom-minded disciple, and he's the kind of guy you can send to the hardest places. He's going to be faithful. He's got a, a vibrant faith. And, it, you know, to see another facet of Titus, Paul writes about this. It's very interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 when they were facing all sorts of problems. In fact, he says in verse 5 in chapter 7, he says, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Whoa, you ever been like that? And then he says in the very next verse, verse, he says this, but God who comforts the depressed, you can actually get to a place where you're just depressed and overwhelmed by this, but God who comforts the depressed, he comforted us with the coming of Titus. You see, God uses his people to remind us, renew us, refresh us, pull us up, encourage us, and we need that. I tell you, it's the people in your life, and Paul knows that, and he says, you know, Titus, I've went on, I've given him a tough assignment. I've sent him to Demetia. And then look at verse, the next verse here, verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Luke, in Colossians 4, Paul speaks of him as the beloved physician. If I was a medical doctor, that's how I'd want to be known, as the beloved physician. Luke is a very interesting guy. He becomes the traveling companion for Paul, and he was invaluable because Paul had a tendency to get in some pretty tough situations, and it often didn't end well for Paul. Like he'd get beat up, stones thrown in him. One time they even left him for dead. And if you're in a situation where you got a lot of health issues, it's really good to have a beloved physician as a really close friend, and that's Luke. And Luke is the kind of guy that is unafraid and is really able to bring capable ministry. So Paul in the maritime prison, this is basically like a hole in the ground waiting for you to die, and they'll keep you barely alive, meager portions. But what they would do, though, guards could be bribed so that prisoners could receive the food that they'd need or any other sort of supplies. And so Luke is with me. And see what he says, verse 11? This is Luke ministering. And Luke is such a significant guy. Um, If I were to ask you this question, who wrote most of the New Testament? What would you say? Well, the Apostle Paul, right? And you would be wrong. What? You know who wrote most of the text of the New Testament? Why, Luke, the beloved physician, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. Here's something else that's really fascinating. Luke is a Gentile. He is very likely the only Gentile that God uses to write Scripture. It's Luke, the beloved physician. And then notice what else he says in verse uh, 11. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. John Mark. Wow! How in the world does he end up in some of one of Paul's final sentences? Do you remember John Mark? Okay, 
little review of history. First missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, they're going, and they're bringing Barnabas' cousin Mark. And they're kind of going along, and, and like, Mark is right there, man. Key guy. They really need this young guy. But you know what? It's getting a little tough. In fact, Acts 13, 13, it says that while they're going on their missionary journey, John Mark decides, you know what? This is rough. It is difficult. I'm gone. And he abandons them and departs from them. And for Paul and Barnabas, as they're going and proclaiming the gospel, where they'd never been heard, it went from bad to worse. And John Mark was absent. So it's no surprise on the second missionary journey, when they're going to go back and visit the saints, proclaim the gospel, help establish churches, make disciples, see how they're doing in these fledgling little churches. Barnabas says, hey, that's right. Let's get the gang back together, band back, right? Let's bring on Mark. Oh, Paul says, you got to be kidding. Are you short-term in your memory? He abandoned us. No way. And there was such a sharp disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. Guess what? They actually separated. They went on, went on separate missionary journeys. Barnabas took Mark, and Paul took Silas. And they went on their separate missionary journeys. But you know, when you read Mark, it shows you that God is never done with his people. Even if you are a huge failure, and you've messed up in, in ways that get recorded in Scripture as like, you never want to be like this. Because, you know, what God does? He brings his people. Very interesting. You know who picks up Mark and starts to invest in him and mentor him? A guy who knows a lot about failure. In fact, it's recorded in the gospel accounts. You may have actually heard of him. His name is Peter the very guy who denied Jesus. And Peter picks up Mark and begins to pour into him. So much so, in, so that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Paul's giving, uh, Peter's giving closing greetings. He refers to son, Mark as his son, my beloved son. Whoa! And Mark gets poured into by Peter. And do you know that Mark, he receives an honor that only three other men will have ever received and that is to write the gospel account of Jesus' life. Informed by P Peter, Mark writes it. You may have read it. The gospel of Mark. Are you kidding me? The guy who ran away, abandoned when the going got tough? He got out of there? That's right. Every time you read Mark, you're like, wow. God is a God of grace, and he is never done with his people and Paul obviously understood that because he writes right there, would you pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. And then he says in verse 12, look at more people, but Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Tychicus is also a key guy. He's a guy who can stand in the gap. And so Paul sends Tychicus to Ephesus where Paul, excuse me, Timothy is the pastor in this very difficult situation, wild pagan city, Tychicus is the guy and a guy who can stand in, lead, make disciples, preach the word, and see the gospel going forth so Timothy can make his way to Paul. It goes again to show you the power of relationship. And then he says, verse 13, but when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. He says, 
when you come, I, do not forget the coat because winter is about to hit and it is going to be really cold. If I'm still alive, I'm going to need that cloak. And furthermore, he says, bring the books and the parchments. These are likely letters of the Old Testament, perhaps even letters that the Apostle Paul had written as he is writing the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these, these parchments, these are animal vellum, okay? These are very expensive. You would write only things that are most important. And Paul's saying, bring them. I've got some writing to do. You know, I take amazing courage, uh, uh, encouragement from this. Because you see, Paul knows that he's going to die, but he's a real leader. And real leaders, they keep reading, and they keep thinking, and they keep writing. It's not like, well, I'm retired, and I've given up, and I'm stopping all that. I'm telling, he knows he's going to die, but he is still in the game. There is still encouragement to be had. There's things for me to be learning. There's life for me to be giving and bring it. And, but he says, when you come. You see, all of these people, they're, they're life-giving. They make such a difference. You know, it's people that God's going to use to greatly encourage you in your faith in Christ. Are you developing and cultivating relationships beyond the superficial? Beyond the, well, it's just all very, just, you know, superficial here. I'm pretty good at the stiff arm. Anybody even try to get close to me, just kind of push them aside. Life is too short for you to live lonely, to have really no one that knows you, nor do you really know anybody. You see, we're designed for relationship. We're in the body of Christ. We need each other. Christ is the head. And hence, we have the tools, the Spirit himself, the ability to love and encourage, to forgive, to move forward, to forget. Indeed, we need these things because it's the people in your life that will be one of the most significant factors that will influence your faith in Christ. And let me give you the other, and that is the power of his presence. Friends, you need to know that life can get really challenging. In fact, Paul starts just in a very personal way to write of some of these deep, painful experiences in his life. Starting with verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith, he did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. This is very likely the same Alexander that's found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, the one who was actually this false teacher. But we see that he affected Paul in deep ways. He, he literally, Paul writes, he did me much harm. He really hurt me. He, he was the one who was perhaps led this instigation of just basically trying to dismiss Paul. This idea like, oh, no, 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 no. This guy's not a real apostle. The, the letters that he says he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no, no, you don't need that. Forget it. I want you to know that, his, that, that same rhetoric, these same kind of attacks, they exist even today. Even this past week, I just had heard of this idea like, well, you just need to dismiss the Apostle Paul and what and his writings. Just what did Jesus say? Just kind of focus on that. I want you to know Paul was wounded deeply by Alexander the coppersmith. And notice what the difficulties are. It always comes down to the truth, to the Bible, to the scripture. That's the battleground. He says, verse 15, be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. I want you to know that if you were walking with Jesus, you are 
intentional about your faith. You're looking to share the gospel. You're looking to help people grow in their relationship, make disciples, whether it be with children, any age. I want you to know that if you're kingdom-minded and you're driven to be making critical investments, you're walking in the spirit, you got a target on your back and you're going to take some hits. I, you cannot be spared for these things because there is a war going on. We've seen it all throughout 2 Timothy. We're to be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. But I want you to know, you might take some wounds. You might get hit. And Paul is writing, and this is deeply painful, he did me much harm. And Paul is showing us and modeling one of the critical things that we need to learn about how to handle the hurt in our life that's been inflicted by another person, and that is to leave it with the Lord. Did you see that in verse 14? He did me much harm, but the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. What Paul is doing is he's, he's basically putting into practice what he wrote about in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. He says, remember, like, hey, listen, don't take your own revenge, my beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I want you to know God is going to uphold all justice in the universe. And those harmful, false accusations, the hurt that was inflicted upon you, I want you to know God himself is going to address this. But we have to learn how to leave it with the Lord. And I want you to know this is really hard to do. But if you don't do it, you're going to end up a really bitter person. Your ability to actually love and to walk in the spirit, spirit and to experience all God has for you, it will be curtailed because you didn't handle the deep wound well. And Paul says he, wanted, he modeled it. And likely Timothy needed exactly to hear this, as do we. The Lord, the Lord will repay him according to to his deeds. And then he writes of another experience that you know that just, it had to grip him. Maybe even had tears coming down his face when he wrote this in verse 16. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. My first defense. In the Roman legal system, there were two um, trials that would take place. The prima axio, was the first one. And this actually determined, it was a, whether or not there was going to be a trial that was going to actually find out if you were guilty or innocent, that there was enough substantiated there. It was like contemporary arraignment. And it would establish a charge and determine whether or not there needed to be the secunda actio, which is the trial that would basically determine guilty or you're going to be set free. And so at the first one, Paul has to write, no one. Think of all the investments that Paul had made, the sacrifices made. No one stood with me. Alexander the coppersmith, perhaps he's actually there leading the assaults and like the charges, like absolutely not. I know this guy. He's, he's reckless. He's, a, he's false. He's an embarrassment. He deserves death. He's, you, I want you to know this had to hit him at the core. And we don't know what this looked like, but if you're at Rome, and that's what he did, he appealed to Caesar. And who's in charge? Nero. 
the Roman emperor. And we don't know if Nero himself heard the apostle Paul actually bearing testimony of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead, before Nero, but wouldn't that be just like God to do something like that? And then all, you read about these people that, he said, everyone deserted me. Why's that? Well, if you recall just a few years back, AD 64, ring a bell? That is when Rome burned the ground. And it's, it's very likely. Most historians think that actually Nero set Rome on fire so he could rebuild it in his own, according to his own imagination. But like Nero was taking heat for this, and so he needed a scapegoat. And boy, did he find a good one. Ah, these, uh, I know who did it. It's these Christians, these, these, these followers of this Jesus, they call him Lord, they don't bow down and worship me. There's some sect of Judaism, but the Jews hate him. I don't know. But it was the Christians that set fire to Rome. And in order to emphasize his point, like just, wow, how terrible these Christians are, he captured some. And in some, he actually took uh, animal skins, freshly killed, wrapped these Christians in them, put them in the Colosseum, gathered everyone around, and fed them to wild dogs who shredded them. On other occasions, he took these captured Christians who would not forsake their faith in Christ, dipped them in pitch and mounted them and set them afire as torches in his garden parties. We're talking absolute insanity. And so I want you to know it was difficult to be a follower of Jesus, especially in Rome. And maybe it cooled off in a few years because this is written about AD 67. We don't know. All we do know is this. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. But notice what he says. May it not be counted against them. Mm. Where do you get strength like that? So magnanimous. May it not be counted against them. You know, I'll tell you where. You know where Paul got that, by the way. He got it from Jesus. Remember when Jesus was being crucified on the cross? He says what? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. By the way, Stephen, the first martyr for the faith, he said the exact same thing. He's all alone except for one. Look at verse 17. But the Lord stood with me, whoa, and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. It was the Lord himself. He literally infuses with me with strength so that I might speak the gospel, that I might have strength to proclaim his name, that I might move forward by faith. In fact, he says he saved me, whether from literal lions or figurative ones. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's God who will allow me, not that I'm not going to die, but that I will not forsake the faith. I will not jump in or catapult myself in some sort of disastrous sin. It's God and his strength that will do that. You see, that's the power of his presence. And that's going to make all the difference in our lives in Christ. Kayla Mueller, when she was 26 years old on a humanitarian mission 
in Turkey. She was captured by Muslim extremists, terrorists. Uh, you remember ISIS? They captured this young lady, and in the spring of uh, that took place August 3rd, 2013. In the spring of 2014, they allowed the captors, allowed her to write a letter home. And so she did. And she writes, and I want to give you some excerpts of this, that she is in a safe location. She's completely unharmed and healthy. This 26-year-old begins to apologize in a very touching way about the hardships that she's placed on her family during this captivity. But then she comes to her central proposition. I remember mom always telling me that all in all, in the end, the only one you really have is God. I have come to a place in experience where in every sense of the word, I have surrendered myself to our creator because literally there was no one else. This girl who had been involved in a campus ministry at Northern University, Arizona University, she writes, by God and your prayers, I have felt tenderly cradled in free fall. She adds, I've been shown in darkness light and have learned that even in prison, one can be free. I am grateful. I have come to see that there is good in every situation. Sometimes we just have to look for it. And she concluded, please be patient. Give your pain to God. I know that you would want me to remain strong, and that is exactly what I'm doing. Do not fear for me. Continue to pray as will I. By God's will, we will be together soon. All my everything. Kayla. February 10th, 2015. Her captors murdered her. But she is safe in the arms of Jesus who brought her into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, see, God will give us the grace we need at the moment we need it, and perhaps not until that moment arrives. So Paul closes this letter. In verse 19, Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. Timothy, make every effort to come to me before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. You see what Paul is doing. He's writing this letter, and he is showing us how to bring our, the focus of our faith upon God and his truth, and not to be overwhelmed by feelings. Think of all the disappointment, hurt, and pain, and discouragement. It'd be easy to be overwhelmed. We would understand that. But Paul is showing us how to bring focus to our faith. And I want you to know how to do that, because that will perhaps make all the difference in your life. I want to uh, tell you that uh, if you don't learn how to bring focus to your faith upon God and his truth, feelings likely are going to dominate your life, if not derail it. And when we talk about all sorts of feelings, we're talking about like anger and discouragement and helplessness, unhealthy fear, lust perhaps will run rampant in your life, greed, pride, they'll just like, they'll just own you because you are not handling it correctly, even as a Christian. That's why this train diagram that I'm about to show you has made such a difference in my life. I learned this as a very new Christian. It's not original with me. That uh, Bill Bright is the originator of it. But this train diagram helps us bring focus to our faith. And let me just simply explain to you how this works. So this is a steam locomotive, okay? So how that works, you got the coal car, you see that? And the coal would be placed into the firebox of the steam engine. And that burning coal would heat the liquid water into a vapor. Hence, it's a steam locomotive, okay? And that steam would propel the engine forward. It is, by the way, 
that uh, along old railroad tracks, you either find a small town or a water tower about every 8 to 10 miles because that's all the farther an original steam engine could go. But uh, there's also then the caboose. And uh, even though they don't have cabooses anymore, this is where the men that would work if the train had a breakdown or there was some trouble with the tracks, that's where those guys hang out. And when they were needed, they'd pop out, they'd take care of things. So there's the steam engine, steam locomotive. Well, we could actually take this analogy and just use it to help us uh, develop this picture in our mind. So the coal car, why that represents, the coal represents our faith. And what we want to do is place our faith in the facts. What is true about God, about life, about purpose, about the situation, focusing on what is true. And so we place our faith in the facts. And that's what's supposed to happen. We're, we're supposed to believe what is true. Um, but we also have feelings. And feelings are extremely powerful. And by the way, let me tell you why you have feelings. They're powerful and they're necessary. They fill life with life. We have feelings because we're made in the image of God who is personable. And so these feelings are really given to us by God so that we experience the fullness of life. They reinforce great experiences. And we experience the full gamut of life because of feelings. Feelings are so powerful, though, by the way, that they can actually control your life. And what happens, and this happens so often, we put our faith not in the facts but in our feelings. Um, Question. Do you know what it was called when the caboose led the train? It was called a train wreck. You know why? Because the caboose was never meant to lead the train. You see, emotions, they're from God. But our emotions and our feelings are to be gauges, not guides. They are terrible governors because they're so fickle and they're all over the map. And so what we need to do is learn how to focus our faith on what is true. Paul writes of this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. You keep thinking about what is true. The things that you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So let me give you an example of how to put the train diagram to good use to direct your faith onto the facts. So let's say you've got a problem, and the problem being faced, let's say, is anger. And there is something that has happened, and we've all faced this, and it's got you really upset, and you are mad, and you're about ready to unload and explode and create a scene, okay? And I'm sure you've had that. You don't have to think too far back, right? You're mad. So what you do, that's the problem being faced, then you actually identify the present feelings. And in this case, I feel mad and angry. And it doesn't help that I'm hungry and tired, but that's how I feel. So then we need the permanent facts. And what I'm about to tell you is going to be really important. You have to calm down to actually receive the facts. You have to quiet yourself. You need to take a few deep breaths. You need to gain some composure Because otherwise, the truth of God's word, the facts, they're going to be like rubber balls hitting concrete. They're just going to bounce. It's just not going to hit. Because you need to calm down, pause, take a walk. Um, Let me give you some Bible verses in this. Like Psalm 46, verse 10 says, Cease striving, which literally means let go of relax, 
and know that I am God. And by the way, if you're married, it's really good if you can work it in your marriage that you recognize that your spouse needs a few minutes and you graciously say, give it to them. Hey, why don't you just take a few minutes? It's okay. Or let me give you another one. Psalm 131, verse 2, from the Psalm of Ascents, meaning they would sing this all the time going to Jerusalem. David writes this, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. That's a lot of what we do in prayer. Compose and quiet our soul. Like a weaned child rest against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. You're calming down. And then when you're calming down, then start focusing on the truth. What has God said about this matter? What am I supposed to do? So on the issue of anger, there are a lot of verses, but I'll, I picked Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. It says, be angry. And you're like, check, got it, doing that right there. Be angry and yet do not sin and do not let the sun go down your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Oh, whoa, anger can be really bad. Yes, it can. So then what we do is we have a prayer-directed faith. And so we direct our prayer to God, which is, by the way, the ultimate expression of faith. And you simply say, God, please help me. I'm really upset about this. I'm angry. I need your perspective. I need your peace. I need power. I ask that you would restore the joy of my salvation. God, help me to handle this well. Help me to be under your control because I'm out of control right now. And you pray in Jesus' name. And what you'll find is that as you orient your faith to the facts, your feelings will follow. You see, God wants us to live our life in Christ. In fact, it's the theme of 2 Timothy. It's how to glorify God by living out the promise of life in Christ Jesus. That is from the very first book, very first verse of this book. And so we must. And so Paul writes this, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you, And with the closing of that letter came the closing of his life. You see that the love that we share, it makes all the difference in the life that we live. Let's pray. Lord, we...